Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for episode number five. Now, before we get started, I wanted to briefly say that I really appreciate everyone that's been listening so far. I have personally been enjoying this process immensely of, you know, putting out a weekly podcast and I welcome any constructive feedback, case suggestions, anything. Um, Please interact with me. I'd love to hear from you by email, like, subscribe, review, whatever it may be. I would certainly love to hear from those that are listening. I also do have um, t-shirts available. So if that's something of interest too, feel free to email me at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. More than happy to send you one. So for today's episode, we are going to be covering Tony Costa, the Cape Cod Vampire. And before I dive into his early life, I wanted to quickly run through some of the sources that I used for today's episode. So one is an essay that was published in Life Magazine in 1969 by Kurt Vonnegut, who's a very well-known author, essayist, etc. And he actually is from Cape Cod and Interestingly enough, his daughter interacted with um, the Cape Cod vampire at one point. So very, very interesting perspective. Um, Also talks quite a bit about Cape Cod during the late 60s, which is when most of this crime occurred. So I also used an excerpt from Michael Newton's Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers, Hunting Humans. Excerpts from Leo Damore's In His Garden, which was a true crime book published in 1981. It is currently out of print, though. And I also used an article in Cape Cod Times by Emily C. Dooley that talks about, compares essentially this case with the murder of um, Krista Worthington, which is something I'd probably cover down the line. I used the Born to Kill documentary about this case, Murderpedia, good old Murderpedia. And then there was also a People Magazine article about the author, Leo Damore, who, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but um, who wrote that book in his garden. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Anton Charles Costa, or better known as Tony, was the Cape Cod vampire. He was born on August 2nd, 1944 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His father died a hero in World War II after he had saved another drowning sailor and hit his own head on some coral in the waters off of New Guinea. Tony would later proudly show this newspaper clipping about his father throughout his life. His father's life insurance amounted to about $10,000, which in today's money is over $70,000. And his mother put part of this trust, uh, put part of this money in a trust for Tony. So obviously he was well taken care of from the get-go. Apparently he was a very spoiled little boy and was never punished for anything. When he was around seven years old, he began complaining to his mother that a man who he identified through a photograph as his deceased father was coming into his room at night. In November of 1961, when he was 16, he invaded the apartment house of a teenage girl, and he stood over her bed until she woke, and he fled after she screamed. 
Three days later, he re-entered the same apartment and this time attempted to drag her down the basement of the apartment, but was fortunately stopped by intervening neighbors. He was convicted of burglary and assault in that case the next year when he was 17 and received a suspended one-year sentence plus three years probation. And essentially, the judge told Tony to get out of town. Tony had arrived in Provincetown his senior year of high school. It's definitely what people would describe as an artist colony where people fish. It's very lively in the summer. They are um, they have heavy amounts of tourists visiting in July and August, but in the winter time, it's fairly dead. Now, the locals all knew each other very well. In the mid to late 1960s, it became a gathering for the emerging hippie culture of the time. It was a place where people could go do their own thing. According to Cape Cod journalist and broadcaster Francis Broadhurst, quote, Provincetown was a mecca for unusual people and artistic people. The fishermen were very forgiving of a lot of things. Tony's family was from Provincetown originally, but he had actually grown up in the Boston area. Because of this, when he returned to Provincetown, he was considered by P-Town natives a wash ashore. He was close to six feet, muscular, quiet, and kept to himself. He always sat in the back of the school bus and never got involved with other students. He was definitely considered a loner. In his 20s, most of his associates were teenagers. He never seemed to hang around people of his own age. He also really enjoyed taxidermy. He would drive around even in the late night for the sole purpose of finding dead animals. He would pick up the roadkill, take them home, and preserve them. His fascination with death was evident in this hobby. Now, Tony considered himself an intellectual, and he was of superior intellect with an IQ of 121. One of his peers growing up, Bob Anthony, said if you debated with him, quote, he always had to be right. There was no middle ground with Tony. That's why he kept to himself more, because people didn't want to deal with it. But younger girls found his good looks and intellect attractive. In April 1963, he married a 14-year-old girl named Avis, whom he had gotten pregnant. He wanted a woman that was submissive and that he could control. Initially, the couple were practicing Catholics, but eventually their faith lapsed. She did say later in 1969, quote, We both believe in reincarnation, psychedelia, and God in nature. Together, they had three children. Avis said, He always wanted a little girl. He was a little disappointed when the first child was a boy. But when Nicole was born, he was overjoyed. Tony was a carpenter and handyman, but his work was anything but consistent, and he was developing a drug habit, which of course created rifts in the marriage. He also had his own marijuana garden in the woods behind the cemetery in neighboring town of Truro. It was very remote, desolate, and quiet, totally off of the beaten path. He would frequently invite young girls to join him there to indulge in the marijuana and other drugs. On one such occasion in June 1966, Costa brought home two hippie girls named Bonnie Williams and Diane Fedorov. He said he was going to take them to Pennsylvania and then to California, but later told police that he attempted to take them to Hayward, but they had never arrived. He returned home 10 days later without them, and they were never heard from again. The next summer, he lured a female acquaintance to his marijuana garden and accidentally shot her with an arrow in the back. He later apologized for the incident. Not really sure how that happens. Sorry I shot you in the back with an arrow when we're supposed to be out here smoking marijuana. Sure, why not? Luckily, she did survive. In January of 1968, with his marriage in shambles, 
Tony escaped to California and briefly stayed in San Francisco's free-swinging Haight-Ashbury district. He dated a woman named Barbara Spaulding who left her child and family and vanished when Costa went back to Massachusetts. Much like Bonnie and Diane, she was never heard from again. Back in Cape Cod, Costa was pulled over by a state police officer, Tom Gunnery, due to a bad muffler and for speeding on Route 6. Costa reportedly acted suspicious, but Gunnery ultimately let him off with a warning. After learning of the disappearances, Gunnery later said he believed a victim could have been in Costa's trunk. A week later, on March 24th, Sydney Monzon, a beautiful 18-year-old with long brown hair, vanished from her house in Provincetown. She embraced the liberal culture popular with the youth in the area, so initially family and friends thought she had left of her own volition. Apparently, she often did things on a whim. She was described as friendly and outgoing. But as time went by and Sydney had not been in contact, her loved ones finally reported her missing in mid-June. Costa's strange and devious behavior continued into that summer. He burglarized a doctor's office and stole $5,000 worth of various surgical tools and drugs. Later that summer, he and his wife finally divorced and he moved in with his next lover, Susan Perry. He'd been there for only about a week before she too vanished on September 10th. According to Costa, she had gone to Mexico. Late that month, he was arrested for driving on a suspended license and again on the 25th for failing to pay child support. He was held in custody until November. After being released, he spent time using drugs with a woman named Christine Gallant, who was later found drowned to death in her bathtub after a barbiturate overdose. On January 24, 1969, two 23-year-old friends, Marianne Wysocki, a junior at Rhode Island College, and Patricia Walsh, who went by Pat, who was an elementary school teacher, showed up in Provincetown for a weekend getaway. They had decided to make the impromptu trip from Providence, Rhode Island, in Pat's light blue Volkswagen. They had registered for two nights at a guest house operated by a woman named Mrs. Morton. Mrs. Morton introduced the girls on that day, January 24th, to Costa, who was also staying as a paying guest at the house. The next morning, Mrs. Morton discovered a note pinned to the door of the girls' room, which asked, quote, Could you possibly give me a ride to Truro early in the morning? The note was signed, Tony. Later that same day, between noon and 2 p.m., Costa was seen riding as a passenger in a light-colored Volkswagen by a friend and colleague of his named Zacharias. Two girls were also in the Volkswagen. One of the girls was driving. Costa hailed Zacharias, the two men conversed, and Zacharias delivered a check belonging to Costa from their shared mutual employer. The Volkswagen then drove off in the direction of Truro. Later that afternoon, the two girls failed to keep an appointment to meet with a man named Russell Norton at Provincetown. The following day, on Sunday, January 26th, Mrs. Morton found a note tacked to the door of the girls' room again. Quote, We are checking out. Thank you for your many kindnesses. It was signed, Marianne and Pat. It was written, though, on the same type of paper as had been on the note the previous day. Personal property belonging to the girls was missing from the room. Later that day, Mrs. Morton saw Costa in the house. Marianne and Pat never returned from their weekend getaway. This was entirely out of character for the girls, even during the late 1960s, so their parents were immediately alarmed and reported them missing. On Wednesday, January 29th, Costa asked a gasoline station owner what he would charge to, quote, 
paint a Volkswagen some exotic color. Detective Bernie Flynn and State Trooper Tom Gunnery were assigned the job of tracking down the girls. Detective Bernie Flynn and State Trooper Tom Gunnery were assigned the job of tracking down the girls. They started at Mrs. Morton's boarding house in Provincetown and quickly discovered that Tony had a room there. They searched his room and in the closet, they found rope that was stained a dark red. This, of course, immediately raised suspicions. On February 2nd, deep in the woods of Truro, Pat Walsh's Volkswagen was seen on Cemetery Road by resident Carl Benson. He was out for a drive with his kids when he saw the Volkswagen parked in a clearing. He started to get out of the car to check things out when he got spooked and decided rather abruptly to leave the area, according to published reports. When he returned with an officer, there was a note attached to the car claiming mechanical trouble. Benson claimed that there had not been a note there before. A quick check with the police station proved the car had not been listed as stolen, so nothing else was done. It was later discovered that Costa asked two friends to ride to Boston with him in the Walsh Volkswagen. He told the two friends that two girls had given him the car and they were going to Canada. While in Boston, Costa made inquiry as to where he could procure a fake driver's license, registration, and bill of sale. He also offered to sell his friends a 22 caliber pistol, which he said was buried in the woods of Truro. He even rented a parking space for the Volkswagen and attempted to register it under his own name in Burlington, Vermont. The Rhode Island license plates were later found concealed under a rubber mat within the vehicle. Police also found a torn cover of the owner's manual. Laboratory tests later identified his fingerprints on the cover. On February 8th, personal property of the two girls was found in Costa's room at the Morton house. That same day, Trooper Gunnery found an indentation 10 feet off the road in the Truro woods that looked suspicious. He started digging and came across a green duffel bag. Underneath, he was stunned to discover dismembered body parts. The body had been separated into eight sections and the sexual organs had been removed. It was later identified as 19-year-old Susan Perry, who had not been seen five months before her discovery. She was a local girl that Tony had been dating at the time. At this point, he had skipped town. But learning that he was a suspect in the disappearance of Mary Ann and Pat, he voluntarily returned to Cape Cod to assert his innocence. He said one of the girls was going to Montreal to have an abortion. He also said that the girls gave him the car. But in the subsequent days, he would tell the police by telephone and in person three inconsistent stories of his last contact with the girls and how he came into possession of the Volkswagen. In early March, a telegram from New York City arrived at his mother's home in Provincetown. It was addressed to Costa, and it had been sent the day before at 12.05 Eastern Time, reading, quote, What happened? We waited as planned. Is everything all right? We'll meet you as scheduled. New York City, call Chuck first. Love, Pat and Marianne. Costa's mother took it to the police. A detective was soon dispatched to New York to investigate and learned that Tony had sent the telegram himself from a telephone number to which he had access. A month after the discovery of Susan Perry's body, State Trooper Gunnery noticed a huge tree in the Truro Woods with strands of rope around the base. It appeared to be the same rope he and Detective Flynn found in the room that Costa had rented at in the Morton house. He started to dig around the tree and quickly came across pill vials and drug paraphernalia. But underneath that was a plastic bag, and inside of it was a severed human head. 
It was the head of Marianne Wysocki, but not all of her was there. Police continued to dig, and eventually they uncovered another grave. In the hole, they found the remaining parts of Marianne and the body of Patricia Walsh. But that wasn't all. Underneath Marianne and Pat was the body of missing Sidney Monson. She was dismembered as well. During the autopsy, post-mortem incised wounds, or stab wounds, were found perforating the entire thickness of the chest wall and fracturing one of the ribs. Marianne had a gunshot wound through the back of her head, and another gunshot wound, which caused her death, was found on the left side of her head. Her buttocks showed many stab wounds, quote, big slashes, which involved both the skin and the underlying muscles and soft tissues. Stab wounds were also present in the chest, and the skin was again peeled, creating a sweater-like effect. The pathologist testified that the mutilation and dismemberment of the bodies was done after death, and that his findings were consistent with a psychiatric condition known as necrophilia, that is, the perverse sexual attraction to dead bodies. The pathologist further described the numerous stab wounds and slashing-type wounds, which he inferred from his findings were all inflicted after death. In each case, there was evidence of sexual abuse. He mutilated these young women much as he had done the roadkill he picked up for his taxidermy hobby. Prosecutor Armand Fernandez later said, quote, When you see pieces of the body outside, and they're taken out, and they're set down, and their photographs taken, it looks like pieces of something. But when they're put on a white slab in the mortuary, and their bodies are cleaned, and you can look at their faces, you can see the horror in their face. You can see the scream as they're caught just before death, and you just don't forget things like that. The community was shocked at the viciousness of the crimes and the discoveries made national headlines. The case gained international attention when District Attorney Edmund Dennis, in comments to the media, claimed, quote, the hearts of each girl had been removed from the bodies and were not in the graves. Each body was cut into as many parts as there are joints. Dennis also claimed that there were teeth marks found on the bodies. These claims produced a stream of national and international media outlets into local province town. The media was so great that Kurt Vonnegut, as I mentioned earlier, whose daughter Edith had met Costa and had been invited to the marijuana garden, compared him to Charles Manson in his collection of essays, Wampeters, Foma, and Grand Falloons. While Dennis's comments made for great copy, they were all completely untrue. The hearts had not been removed, although some organs were missing from at least one of the bodies. No cutting device had been found, and the remark about as many body parts as joints was wild hyperbole, if not physically impossible. But Dennis managed to transform the murders into an international story. The press is bad, Provincetown Police Chief Barrio said, but the tourists are even worse. His garden had become a complete tourist trap. Curiosity seekers flocked to the Truro woods, hoping to find the graves or worse, one of the victim's joints that had been overlooked by police. Rumors of satanic worship, which persist to this day, began to shroud the case. Of course, all evidence pointed to Tony Costa, and he was immediately arrested. According to Truro resident E. Thomas Prada, who was 20 at the time of the killings, quote, everyone was shocked that someone, particularly someone you knew, would do something so heinous. It's not something a wise, prudent person would do. It was pretty scary for a lot of people in the area. Eleven days after his arrest, Costa's attorney argued for a gag order to be imposed on the investigators and others close to the case. 
It was only the second time in Massachusetts that a district court, which did not have injunctive powers to halt communication, would seek a power save for the state superior court. The first case, three years prior, was related to Sam Shepard, the doctor whose case later became the theme of the fugitive television series and movie, and certainly a case I want to cover. Costa was examined by a psychologist who diagnosed him as having a schizoid personality. Another examination on him characterized him as, quote, a modern-day Marquis de Sade and a sexually dangerous man capable of murder. According to Dr. Catherine Ramsland, a forensic psychologist, quote, somebody with a schizoid personality would tend to be people that really like to stay alone, don't have particular connections with other people, and they tend to find jobs where they can work alone. If a person is schizoid, they would tend to not value family relationships or have empathic relationships with friends. They would have much less interest in the mores of society. Costa gave numerous confessions while in police custody. He tried twice to implicate two of his friends for the murders, but it wasn't until mid-July that he finally confessed to Marianne's murder. His trial began the following year in 1970. His lawyers attempted to plead insanity because of his heavy drug use, but according to Professor Louis Schlesinger, who reviewed the case, the drugs didn't cause the behavior, they only served as an inhibitor. He was disturbed, no doubt, but not psychotic, and his fantasy life was just primitive and regressive. During his trial, he was cold and arrogant, sitting in the prisoner's dock, taking notes. State Trooper Gunnery believed Costa truly enjoyed being in the spotlight. His lawyers didn't want the jury to see photographs of the mutilated corpses, but his eagerness to see and revel in his handiwork was noted by journalist Francis Broadhurst, who attended his trial. At one point, Costa insisted on standing up and making a dissertation regarding the evils of drugs. This completely destroyed the assertion that he was insane, as he gave this intelligent, rational statement. His narcissism allowed him to believe he could charm the jury and control how he was perceived thereby controlling his fate. Prosecutor Armand Fernandez said the statement proved he knew the difference between right and wrong. There was also so much circumstantial evidence from which the jury could properly infer that Costa was sane, that he was capable of deliberate premeditation, and that he killed the two girls with deliberately premeditated malice aforethought. The jury could find that Costa left a note on the door of the girls' room and thereafter maneuvered them in the Walsh Volkswagen to an isolated wooded area for the purpose of killing them without being discovered. He carried a pistol with him or had it hidden at the scene in advance. He had a knife and probably other cutting instruments also available. He carried out intelligently the procurement of his paycheck from a friend on the same day as the killings and probably at most within a matter of hours before the killings. He accomplished two successive killings by gunshot. He then concealed the bodies in the murder gun by burying them. He parked the Walsh automobile in a wooded area. He wrote a note and left it on the door of the girls' room the day after the killings to persuade Mrs. Morton that they had checked out, and then he secretly cleared all of their property out of their room. He then concealed the Walsh vehicle in remote cities, inquired to have it painted, and tried to procure false documents. So essentially, I mean, every, every step of the way, it indicates that he is trying to cover his tracks. Therefore, it indicates that he knows the difference between right and wrong. This is a very smart individual, a very evil one, but very smart. Costa was ultimately convicted of four murders and subsequently sentenced to life in prison. 
While incarcerated at Walpole Correctional Institution, he began to stock his cell with books on ritual magic and the occult, including a copy of Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. He also wrote a novel called Resurrection, which never received publication. In it, he described how he and a man named Carl took Walsh and Wysocki out to take LSD and Dilaudid when Carl supposedly shot them both in the head. Costa allegedly killed Wysocki with a knife to end her suffering. The two then buried the bodies. He also claimed Perry and Monzon died of drug overdoses and that Carl dismembered and buried their bodies without his knowledge. Unfortunately for Costa, no Carl was ever found to be connected with him, so presumably this was another false confession. Four years after his incarceration on Sunday, May 12, 1974, a Walpole corrections officer making a routine tear check at 8.10 p.m. discovered Tony Costa hanging by the neck from a woven leather belt knotted around the upper bars of his cell. His eyes bulged open, and his darkly mottled face was frozen into a grotesque mask. Blood foamed against his gaping lips from having bitten his tongue nearly in half. One unlaced sneaker had been kicked off during his death struggles, revealing a mended white sock. He had urinated down the front of his unpressed prison trousers. Medical examiner Harold L. Schenker certified that Anton Charles Costa had died of asphyxiation by hanging, suicide. He was 29 years old. His body is currently buried at an unmarked grave in Provincetown next to his mother. It is believed but not proven that he is responsible for many other murders. His ex-wife Avis stayed in Provincetown, where many friends today continue to be protective of her. She chose to stay where she was known, where five generations of her family were living during the killings and where several generations still live today. She eventually returned to her faith and said that religious faith in her family history helped her deal with the realities of his secrets. Quote, if the truth finds you where you are loved, then you are capable of surviving the truth. If it finds you in a place intended to protect you from it, then you're at its mercy. Costa's crimes in his Garden of Marijuana Plants, where he buried his victims, inspired the true crime book In His Garden by Leo Damore. At the Provincetown Library, In His Garden is the book most frequently reported missing or stolen, according to librarians. In a Cape-wide library database, more than a dozen copies of the book are missing or assumed lost. Librarians say interest in the book is a Cape-wide phenomenon and one that hasn't subsided with time. Most of what Damore collected for his 680-page book, autopsy photos, investigators' notebooks, news clippings, personal items, has been warehoused at Kent State University since 1993. Local kids to this day still go to the library in Provincetown to get a look at the book and the map detailing the area where the gruesome discoveries were made. Halloween was not the same after 1969. The fire road leading to the garden became an off-traveled route for high schoolers in search of some October 31st thrills. The kids would play Halloween pranks. You've got to watch out for Tony Chop Chop. He may be around a tree. Damore also authored many other books, including Senatorial Privilege, the Chappaquiddick Cover-Up, about the Kennedy family. And oddly enough, like Costa, Damore took his own life on October 2nd, 1995, at age 66. And how weird is that? Because October 2nd is tomorrow, and it's also my birthday. But uh, hopefully, my, hopefully my day will be better than uh, Leo Damore's. Damore's son, Nick, believes he was driven to it by suspicions that he was being chased or followed by the Kennedy family or its constituents. Nick is currently developing a documentary on the subject. 
So that's the crazy, crazy story of the Cape Cod vampire, Tony Costa. What a wackadoodle. And I have to say, anyone that does taxidermy, I'm not saying you're a serial killer, but I'm not not saying you're a serial killer. It's just a strange hobby. Also very interesting, the drug use. I mean, and we know that, you know, much like Kurt Vonnegut was comparing, like, the Charles Mansons of the world and... Um, I know Ted Bundy was a big alcoholic, like same with Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, a lot of these guys are big, big substance abusers as well. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, it's one of those cases that you can imagine it completely rocked this small town, sort of remote town where, you know, you've got your tourists, but otherwise it's all locals that have been living there for generations. So I can imagine that and understand why he became this sort of almost an entity of folklore as Tony Chop Chop. I mean, that just that just tracks. But um, very interesting case. Very sad for those young ladies. And it's also very sad that many of them were not immediately reported missing because that was just the sign of the times. And I guess more often than not, you know, they just, people, teenagers and young adults would just, you know, go away and truly do their own thing. But in this case, their ends were much more macabre and I, you know, feel terrible for their families and the law enforcement that had to make these grisly discoveries because, you know, it's 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 one thing to to murder somebody, but to dismember and mutilate the corpses like that, I mean, that is just beyond deranged. But again, I truly, truly believe that this man was perfectly sane, um, but just clearly lacked empathy and did things for his own bizarre, lustful reasons. Now on to something beautiful. So as far as a product is concerned, I wanted to mention Bioderma's Sensibio H2O, which is a cleansing and makeup removing micellar water. And it's made for sensitive skin. Um, It's made up of micelles, which is excellent for cleansing and removing uh, makeup. The technology was developed by Laboratory Bioderma, which is a um, French pharmaceutical company that specializes in medication for dermatological and hair and scalp conditions, as well as for podiatry and cell regeneration. That company was founded in 1977 in Aix-en-Provence, where its headquarters still reside. And what, one thing I'm really enjoying these days is how much um, drugstore, pharmaceutical, French beauty companies have uh, sort of infiltrated the American market. Now, with Bioderma, you can buy it from Derm Store, you can get it from Amazon, but if you're looking to just pick it up, I would go to a Walgreens, but try to go to one of the ones that are more well-stocked and larger, um, as opposed to the more the smaller ones, although sometimes you, do, you can get lucky, but I'll post a picture. Basically, I would recommend getting a cotton round. Don't get a cotton ball because it doesn't, I don't think it, it doesn't allow for as much surface because basically what you do is you soak the cotton round, place it up first on your eyes and, and let basically the product penetrate the mascara because obviously that's the most difficult thing to take off. And then you should, after, you know, maybe waiting 20, 30 seconds, um, it should loosen the makeup and you should be able to wipe it off clean. But you can also use it for your face. I mean, it's it's not just for eye makeup, but I really do think when it comes to eye makeup, it, it really holds up well. And I've tried other micellar waters and I do not think anything compares to Bioderma. Um, and the nice thing too is that, well, I guess it depends. But for me, I typically would still wash my face after just to get super clean, but you don't have to. I mean, this should be able to remove all of your um, eye and face makeup 
um, and you don't have to rinse it. But again, I think it's nice to just do one extra little um, cleansing afterwards. But yeah, definitely a huge fan of that product. And um, it so much so that I used to I used to adore and you know it's still a great product but the um, eye makeup remover by Neutrogena I mean I was pretty much a diehard person for it but since then I've I, I switched to Bioderma and I don't regret it and I highly recommend it for you. you so much for listening to episode five as i said on the top of the episode i would love to hear your feedback let me know what you think you can reach me at crime and beauty podcast at gmail.com please rate review subscribe like on facebook instagram instagram is crime and beauty podcast facebook is crime and beauty podcast you can listen at crime and beauty also spotify amazon music audible and what am I forgetting? Apple Podcast. Uh, so take a listen. Let me know your thoughts. And I hope to hear from you soon. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and stay beautiful. Mm-hmm.